Okay. So then, after this powerful reminder, Nabbi أَنِّي أَنَا الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ وَأَنَّ عَذَابِهُ وَالْعَذَابُ الْأَلِيمُ Tell them, my, my servants, but servants means something different than ibadi in Arabic anyway. Tell my creation that I am the the most forgiving and merciful, but at the same time, that my punishment is painful. It immediately takes us to the story and tell them about this story, the story of Ibrahim, the Prophet Ibrahim and his visitors. And his visitors who have a message to him, have a message to Ibrahim, and his visitors are sent to the people of Lot to um, the Prophet Lot, Lut. Now, what's important here is that this story in itself has both, carries in it a demonstrative example of both Allah's mercy and Allah's punishment. So they come, the visitors who are angels, angels in the forms of human beings. They come to the Prophet Ibrahim and he prepares a meal for them. And as the practice of people at that time, this is also, this is of course ancient times, as, as I'm sure you are aware, you know, long before Jesus and even before Moses and so on. And the practice in, at that time in Near Eastern, in the Near Eastern region generally, is that you, when visitors come, you offer them the best you have. And the best you have is that you slaughter some of your livestock, and you prepare a meal for them, which is a meal that has a great value, and that's meat. Uh, they're not like us nowadays, where they, you know, they can consume meat whenever they want. Uh, meat is a is a delicacy. It's something that is a fairly important offering, and it's rare, and it's something that they eat rarely. So. Ibrahim being the proper person that he is at the time offers the visitors this meal and he notices that they're not eating. They're, they're not reaching out to eat at all. And he becomes alarmed and scared. Now, why does he become alarmed? He becomes alarmed because in ancient Near Eastern culture, if you have visitors and you offer them proper food and they don't eat, that means they have hostile intentions. If they eat, you can't eat someone's food. People back then had honor, not like us today. 
if you if you eat someone's food, you can't betray them. You can't stab them in the back. Um, so the fact that they did not eat alarmed the Prophet Ibrahim. Now, notice here, when he becomes alarmed, إِذَا دَخَلُوا عَلَيْهِ فَقَالُوا سَلَامًا قَالَ إِنَّا مِنْكُمْ وَجِلُونَ قَالَ لَا تَوْجَلْ إِنَّا نُبَشِّرُكَ بِغُلَامٍ عَلِيمٍ So, he becomes alarmed and they say, don't become alarmed. We have a bushra, we have a good news for you. And his, and what is the good news is that you're going to have a child. And the child is Ishaq, Isaac. Now, the problem is, is that he's very advanced in age and his wife is very advanced in age and his immediate reaction is shock. And just how could that be that I'm, I'm going to have a child at this age? What an interesting sort of footnote here is to pause at Ibrahim's alayhi alarm. He became alarmed at the visitors who did not eat because he did not have complete information. In other words, again, he was acting on partial knowledge. Was it wrong for him to become alarmed? By the standards of equity, not by the standards of custom and, and, and customary practices, by, by the standards of equity, yes, probably it was wrong that he becomes alarmed. And that's why they have that refrain for him that will say, so they say they, they remind them that you of of something that Ibrahim already already knows, even if that we are messengers, and as messengers we are carrying the truth to you, and the truth regardless of how unlikely it is, because it is from Allah, you must accept it. His response is beautiful here. He immediately, once reminded, comes back and says, and, and who can possibly despair in Allah's mercy? Unless you are completely dalun, unless you are completely wrong. Only those who are, by our language today, only those who are truly screwed up would despair in God's mercy. That's an ethical flagpost for you. If you do not despair in God's mercy, never despair in God's mercy. It is not up to you to ever say, how can Allah possibly forgive me? Allah can possibly forgive you for anything. And not only that, but Allah, if you wish, can transform you 
from the realm of the demonic to the realm of the saintly. It is all contingent on your will, what you want. If you fail to make the transformation, don't be like shaitan and blame Allah for it. It's not Allah's fault. And it's not circumstances' fault. And it's not anyone's fault. It is, if you would have wanted it, Allah would have helped you to achieve it. وَمَنْ يَقْنَطْ مِنْ رَحْمَةِ رَبِّهِ إِلَّا الضَّالُونَ So, next, they tell the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, that we are now sent, now this is the mercy, we are now sent with the other portion, with the other part, Allah's punishment. And Allah's punishment is for قَوْمٌ مُجْرِمُونَ or that for a people who are truly inequitous, truly criminal, and these are the people of Lot. And the, the message of punishment is that all of that the people of Lot, that tribe of Lot, is doomed except for Lot and his followers. And as we will see, Lot's wife. So they travel, the messengers travel to Lot, and they're going to tell the Lot or Lot that when the time comes, you are to leave this town فَسْرِ بِأَهْلِكَ بِقِطَعٍ مِنَ اللَّيْلِ وَاتَّبِعْ أَدْبَارَهُمْ وَلَا يَلْتَفِتْ مِنْكُمْ أَحَدٌ وَامْضُوا حَيْثُ تُؤْمَرُونَ You are to leave and not look back. And you are to proceed to where Allah will tell you to proceed. One of the things that always struck me on this verse is do not look back. The Bible says that though the reason they were told to not look back is that if they looked back, they would be turned to a pillar of salt. That detail is missing from the Quran. The issue of being turned into a pillar of salt. And I, thought, and I think the Quran rejected it because there's so much in, in the Bible that the Quran... The, do not look back it's a new phase in life. After damnation and after punishment, if you want the path of God, turn the page on what was wrong and move forward and do not look back. For me, it has become a principle of life. Once I make the determination to change and to open up a chapter towards goodness, I do not look back. Looking back will make you stumble and fall. 
and will make you full of doubt and confusion. And you're not going to see the picture clearly anymore. Okay. So, the people of Lot, when they find out that he has visitors, they immediately go to him, and the, me the reason they immediately to go to him is twofold. They had told Lot, because Lot had lived among them, trying to reform them for a long period of time, for a, for, for a long time. And the number of people who converted and followed Lot was very small. So for Lot, it would have been a legacy of frustration, and not just a legacy of frustration, but they had told Lot they had sort of instituted a, a, a ban on Lot. You are not to have any outside visitors. And if you have outside visitors, we're going to rape them. Raping visitors is one of the greatest dishonors that could fall any family in ancient Near East culture and, and probably in even modern near uh, culture. Unfortunately, as as Muslims became Westernized, rape became more legitimated, and the the, the in in old uh, Near East tradition, only the most dishonorable human being would rape, either rape man or woman. Um, the idea of rape, it, it, it has a story. It, unlike Greek mythology, which the narratives of Greek mythology is full of stories of rape. Near Easterners, Arabs, Persians, Hebrew speakers, um, Aramaic speakers, or Syriac later on, their mythology is not full of rape. To them, rape is an act of huge dishonor. And uh, the, what Lot, the people of Lot did was that they defied the conventions by, in fact, raping, they, 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 it was homosexual rape, raping foreigners or strangers. They didn't rape members of their own tribe, or, or that would have been like scandalous beyond, but they raped outsiders. So they, they come and they confront Lot and they say, you know, okay, we're, we're going to rape your visitors. And he pleads with, pleads with them not to do so. And in this context, he says, Here are my daughters. This the reason I pause at here are my daughters, this is verse 71, is that, again, pontificators upon the Quran, modern morons, and they're, because they just, what do I say? Ignorance is a horrible thing. Just lack of, lack of reading, lack of study. The, 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 the age of the internet and people 
picking up information from the internet. And if if the internet is your educator, then you're an ignorant person. No if ands are about. I don't care if you spend your entire life just reading what's on the internet. You're ignorant. Uh, the information is in the internet is unverified, unauthenticated. You can't rely on it. Anyway, the point is when he says there are two things. It was common for someone like of the age and position of Lot there to refer to the girls or to the women of the tribe as banati. So when you say, here are my daughters, it doesn't mean you can rape my daughters. It means one of two things. Either a reminder that instead of raping visitors, why don't you marry the women of your tribe? That's one. Two, as every commentator I've ever read on the Quran says, that he could alternatively be saying, well, instead of engaging in the in the uh, shameful practice of raping these men, here are my actual physical daughters, although that's more unlikely that you could marry. So it's not an invitation of rape, and I think everyone that until the modern age that read the Quran understood it as not an invitation of rape. We are not told how that confrontation ends, either in Surat al-Hajr or elsewhere. It's very unlikely that they actually raped angels. I mean, that would be... Uh, the confrontation must have been diffused somehow. Or in, in, we hear, in, we, we read in books on Seer, that they gave him a warning that either they leave by a certain time or they will come and rape them. Uh, and so they went away, and that's when they were all destroyed by the morning. So we know what's going to happen, and that is after these people leave, after the confrontation with a threat or whatever, by daybreak, they're all going to be destroyed, including Lot's wife, who remained obstinate in refusing to believe Lot or to accept his way. But the, the part that deserves pause here is 72. The Quranic comment on this is that the very unusual um, the, uh, uh, the uh, very unusual stylistic usage of Allah swearing by the life of the Prophet, La'amruka. I'm, I'm not going to get into this, but if in the commentaries there's a long debate as to how could God swear by the life of a human being, even if it is the Prophet Muhammad, that, that's not... What interests me this is, as I said, 72. I want to see how he translates it. Um, By thy life they wandered confused in their drunkenness. Uh, 
It's not exactly they wandered confused in their drunkenness. It is by your life, they live confused in their drunkenness. When you live a life of inequity and lack of principle and egotistical self-fulfillment and tajzi'ah, the, the, the people of law refuse to see morality as what it is and ethics for what it is. It is as if you truly live, not just confused, but your confusion is as if you're drunk. You are at times clear-headed and you know what you want to do. And at other times, things are not clear to you at all. You know, it depends on your mood. And your mood depends on things that happen in your life. Someone tells you, talks to you in a certain way on a certain day and you feel good and things are clear. Then another day someone says something, triggers you in a certain way and you're in a bad mood and things are not clear anymore. What is that? if not drunkenness. When I say you do dhikr and prayer on understanding the Quran, it is to be shown that to live a life where you are up and down, swinging back and forth, depending on the stimuli that you received here and there. You're sometimes clear-headed, you're sometimes not clear-headed. You're sometimes in a certain mood, you're sometimes in a different mood. Instead of being anchored in Allah to be shown that this is sakra, this is being drunk, you're intoxicated. That's why then Allah says, وَإِنَّهَا لِبِسَبِيلٍ مُقِيمٍ إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتًا لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَإِنَّهَا لَبِسَبِيلٍ مُقِيمٍ Let's see how they translated it. 76... And verily they are on a path still standing. No, no, no. No, no. And it is a path for those who are anchored in firm standing. So juxtaposed to the to the to the intoxicated, to the drunk, to the confused, are those who are anchored on a sure path. And that is why this is a message for al-mu'mineen. This is why this is a message for the believers. Allah is saying, and with me, you are anchored. You drift away. The closer you get to the demonic, the more you swing back and forth. In mood swings, in confusion, in 
up and down and, you know, whatever. Now, having told you this, the Quran moves on to tell the Prophet um, just one second I want to make sure I'm not forgetting something yeah okay so then it moves on to tell the Prophet about Ashab al-Aika. Ashab al-Aika, most commentators said that this is a reference to the people, to the, tri- to the tribe of Shu'aib. That like the people of Lot, the reason they are called Ashab al-Aika is that reportedly the people of Shu'aib had luscious, um, they, they had great plantations. They they were very adept at farming. And they lived in a, um, uh, in an agriculturally developed region that was, thir- that was completely destroyed and ruined because of their own um, injustice. Now, that, it is quite possible that it is a reference to the people of tribe. But then it, it begs the question, why does the Quran, especially that we know that it talked about the people of Yunus, the people of Hud, the people of Yusuf, in the revelation that came just before Surah Al-Hijr, in the Surah, before Surah Al-Hijr. Then it comes, and it, in Surah Al-Hijr, it talks about people of Lut, and then it refers to Ashab Al-Aika without naming Qawm Shu'aib. It is impossible, it is possible that the, that that it doesn't name Qawm Shu'aib because it is, Ashab Al-Aika can be also a label given to any people who live with prosperous means. So it is possible, I'm not saying it is, but it is possible that it is a reference that transcends the narrative of Qaf tribe to say that people with prosperous means, if they fail in living a just life, their fate is known. Now here is the reference to Ashab al-Hijr. Who are Ashab al-Hijr? And Ashab al-Hijr is, is normally taken to refer to the people of Thamud, who like the people of Shaib and like the people of Lut were also destroyed. But it brings us back then here is where that word Hijr comes from and where the title of the surah comes from. When it talks, Ashab al-Hijr, al-Hijr is a valley. Did 
The people of Thamud live in a valley, as the reports say that it was a valley that existed somewhere between Medina and Syria, Sham. Um, the historical record is very complicated. We can't verify that. But it begs the question, why the reference to the people of the valley? And why does this surah get its name, the Hijr, from that simple reference, وَلَقَدْ كَذَّبَ أَصْحَابُ الْحِجْرِ الْمُرْسَلُونَ المرسلين. The people of Hijr who disbelieved and um, and so on. The only the, uh, uh, Quranic commentators, because, especially because of verse 82 and verse 83 that talked about how they would um, uh, uh, craft or how they would uh, carve habitats or graves out of mountains and how they were punished. So all the Quranic commentators says, well, Ashab al-Hijr, uh, or sorry, well, uh, Ashab al-Hijr refers to um, Qawm Thamud. The only exception that I found are some Sufi commentators that said the fact that the Quran refers to Qawm Thamud in their proper name elsewhere. The reference here to Ashab al-Hijr as they would say. And the people that live in a valley, the people of a valley, and symbolically, the valley connotes, and as I said earlier, that the Quran itself uses the word elsewhere to mean people who have reason or rational people or proper rationality. Allahu alam. But what came to me in prayer, inspired by the Sufi commentators, is that that valley is the valley of where reason is embodied. It's a symbolic, it, it could very well be a reference to Qawm Samud, but in addition, the deeper meaning, and the meaning that I think is the reason that this surah became known as Surah Al-Hijr, is that it addresses your, your rational faculties and how you are going to employ your rational faculties. Are you going to employ your rational faculties to achieve that balance between the physical world and the non-physical world, between a principled life and an unprincipled life? Are you going to follow in the footsteps of those who, with a remarkable balance of character, believed the Prophet ﷺ even after the, the 
assertions of an Isra' wal Mi'raj when he tells you, I ascended to heaven and traveled to Jerusalem? Or are you going to be like those who say, no, that's not possible. I live in a physical world. I live in a material world. And if if something challenges that material convictions, then I'm confused. Because a lot of people, by the way, didn't call the Prophet a liar when about the Isra and Mi'raj. Their response was, I don't know. And I don't know is the way that human beings, since the time of the Prophet, and in fact, since the time of Ibrahim, the response of, I don't know, is the way that human beings have been copping out from making a conviction and a commitment for centuries. You talk to people and you say, but isn't this the truth? Well, I don't know. What don't you know? I I just don't know. It's a cop-out. It's the way human beings escape. Go back to Satan before Allah. In many ways, Satan raises questions before Allah. He says, you've created me of fire. You've created him of clay. How could fire be inferior to clay? Allah could have explained it. It's as if Satan is saying, I don't know. It's as if Satan, and Allah could have said, well, Satan, let me explain it to you. Yes, I've created him of clay, but in that clay is also my breath and also the intellect. But there are situations where principle has to trump all. And it's either you commit to principle, but the cop-out of I don't know doesn't work. Okay. So, Ashab al-Hijr, the people of Thamud, the people of the valley, the people of the intellect, when they fail to follow the path, their fate is doomed. Okay. After taking the Prophet ﷺ through this journey, the journey of creation, the journey of nature, the journey of Sorry, the journey of nature, the journey of creation, the the, the tension at point of creation between truth and falsehood, the journey of earlier prophets and their struggles, which the Quran has already consoled the prophet about in in the revelations between Isra and Al-Hajr in Surah Hud, Yunus and Yusuf. comes this remarkable pronouncement at the core and the heart of Surah Al-Hijr. وَمَا خَلَقْنَا السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضَ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ وَإِنَّ السَّاعَةَ لَا آتِيَةَ فَصْفَحِ الصَّفْحَ الْجَمِيلِ 
you know what? Here's the bottom line. This creation, when Allah says, وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ We have only created the heavens and the earth, this creation. This is verse 85. Just to, And we do not create the heavens and the earth and whatsoever is between them save in truth. إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ What does that mean? Haq is righteously, truthfully. Allah is not obligated to anyone. And if Allah is not obligated to anyone, Allah owes no, no one anything. So when Allah says, I've created this creation with Haq, meaning with for purposefully the very fact that I am the creator is what gives creation its purpose and meaning and that is why then Allah says the the, the hour is coming the fact that the hour is coming is what gives the haqq is what creates meaning. Because if you were created, and, and, and here let me put just a little bit of context. In the Old Testament, the Torah, the Torah doesn't speak about the hereafter. The reward for obeying Allah in the Torah is that Allah would reward you on this earth. The Torah hardly mentions the hereafter. And so for the, especially the Karaite Jews, who are the, the Jews that lived in Medina, although remember, now this is a Meccan revelation, so we haven't yet interacted with Jews at all. But the Arabs were aware of the Jewish tradition, and the Jewish tradition said that whether you do good or bad, the reward is on in this earth. The Christian tradition came and said, by the time the Prophet والسلام, uh, receives, comes to be, the Christian tradition said that Jesus suffered for your sins and accepting Jesus make, make, saves you. And that is the primary and main thing. The Quran came and challenged both. It challenged the Jewish perspective by saying, no, reward on this earth would not make life meaningful. In order for this life to have haq, to have truth, there has to be accountability, and the accountability has to be thorough and complete. And it's not going to happen on this earth because we all know from lived experiences people die unjustly and suffer unjustly all the time. And it is not true that the chosen people are... And I mean, the, the, the Torah itself talks about the suffering of the chosen people. So there's a contradiction there that's never resolved. And the assumption of the Torah is that, well... Allah didn't reward you on this earth because you weren't truly pious and truly with Allah. 
you know, is an empirical claim that is hard to verify. But that's why in the Torah, constantly it tells you about prophets sinning and erring to justify the suffering of the prophets. So, you know, every prophet in the Torah commits major sins, huge sins. And then that justifies their suffering. Well, the the Quran took us out of that perspective. And it also took us out of perspective of someone suffering for the sins of another, which Christianity insisted on, and said, no, justice means you are accountable for your behavior and your actions and only your behavior and your actions. Okay, so now, now that you know what the truth is and what's necessary for a conviction and a commitment to this truth, what should be your attitude towards those who will reject you and who will, who will not see it and will remain confused? This is such a beautiful expression. So forgive the most beautiful forgiveness. It is not so ignore them. It's not so they're idiots, just ignore, you know, turn away from them. They're morons, so just, you know, no. Forgive them a beautiful forgiveness. People, ugh, if only I can, Allah, help me. This is a time when the, the kuffar of Mecca have tortured Muslims, have abused Muslims, have instituted an economic boycott that starved Muslims, and the uh, well, actually, the economic boycott has not been instituted yet, but ha- have no doubt made Muslims suffer and and insulted and humiliated the Prophet time and time and time. And and when the Prophet ﷺ said, I ascended to heaven and went to Jerusalem, they mocked him, they sneered at him, they laughed at him. So then the Quran is coming and telling the Prophet and his followers, here are the facts of life. Here's the truth. Your attitude is not, should not be one of resentment or anger, but beautiful forgiveness. Now I'll tell you why beautiful forgiveness Jump to verse 97. Allah is telling the Prophet, we know, Allah knows, I know, that you are suffering, that they hurt you, that they say the most nasty things. But yet, the 
So when when the permission to to fight is given and it's in the context of people that have carried arms against you, that's one thing. But even when you are waging war, the difference between a war waged from an Islamic theological perspective and a war waged from a non-Islamic theological perspective is in Islam, there's no place for hate. You'll defend yourself because you need to defend yourself. You know, when when Palestinians defend themselves against Israeli aggression, I don't get upset, and I don't believe that a Palestinian should turn the other side of the face and allow Israelis to slap them on the other side of the face. The, the lands have been stolen, and they have a right to resist. And anyone that says otherwise is is wrong. But defending yourself that's why the, the Quran insists again and again, again, do not let the injustice of others lead you into injustice. Do not let the inequity of others lead you into inequity. In other words, you do what you need to do to achieve justice, but at all circumstances, you fight bigotry, you fight hate, you fight racism, you fight sexism, you fight prejudice and bigotry. Was this transformative? Absolutely. Remember that if it wasn't for the character of Muslims, Islam would have never spread. If if the Arabs and non-Arabs of that region had found Muslims angry and vindictive, Islam would have died, like so many other military campaigns died in history that didn't offer offer a cultural or civilizational ethic. The ethic that Muslims came with was a paradigm shift. It was a complete paradigm shift. We don't hate you. We don't hate you. We know you hate us, but we don't hate you. Now, pray, if you were with me, I would have said, let's do dhikr and prayer on what a safh al-jameel, what is beautiful forgiveness mean? How do you beautifully forgive? Because you can't, you can't understand what that means unless you pray on it. No amount, there's no lexicon, there's no dictionary that's going to educate you on what beautiful forgiveness is. But prayer will. Allah will. Now, After telling you this, it brings back the Prophet and says, keep in mind what we've given you. 
Remember how this Quran, this surah started with the Quran. وَلَقَدْ أَيْتَيْنَاكَ السَّبْعِ الْمَسَانِ وَالْقُرْآنَ الْعَظِيمِ What are السَّبْعِ الْمَسَانِ? I'm going to... We don't need to get into the, the, the debates and the tradition, but most said that this is a reference to the Fatiha. Seven verses, and Al-Mathani means that you repeat all the time. And the great Quran, when I prayed on Surah 87, this is how I realized, because some of you have asked me, well, how did you know that the Fatiha is the key to the entire Quran? And it is this. This is how I knew. When I prayed on it, and when Allah tells the Prophet we've given you the Fatha that you are going to repeat often. And the reports are, 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 are crazy as to how often the Prophet used to read the Fatha. And, and there was a famous Sufi woman in Andalus whose entire tariqah was, was founded on the Fatha. It was, it's a fascinating tariqah anyway. They, they, they believe that the Fatha told you everything you need to know about anything. Anyway, that relationship between I gave you the Sab al-Mathani, the Fatha, and the Quran is a relationship of a key and lock. At least that's what my ibadah led me to. Now, next, it moves to an speaking to the Prophet in verse 88 it says strain not your eyes towards the enjoyments we have bestowed upon certain classes of them and grieve not for them and lower thy wing unto the believers okay that's acceptable do not covet what people have. And some, again, ignorant modern Muslims look at this verse and they see the word azwaj and they think it's talking about married people. Maghrib or Okay. Yeah, we need to. Don't, it's not, that, 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 it has nothing to do with married people. I mean, I was shocked in, in, when I heard once in a, a Quranic tafsir in a masjid, an engineer or something was commenting on this stuff. And then he said, oh, don't, don't desire what married couple have. <sighs> ya Allah. Well, do not, when it says do not extend your gaze, that's an idiom. That's an idiomatic expression meaning do not look do not even desire what others have. Now, that refrain of do not desire what others have is a refrain to the Prophet ﷺ and to the early Muslims against materialism. You, yeah, you are going to look around and you're going to see a lot of rich people 
and you're going to see people enjoying things. You know, expensive horses back then and expensive camels were like, you know, buying car uh, car brands. So, you know, you have the person who rides the Mercedes, the person who rides the BMW, the person who rides the Honda, the person who rides whatever. And it all depends on how expensive your horse is and how expensive your camel is. And that's why Arabs wrote a great amount of poetry about horses and camels. And that survives, by the way, to even today. Some, some people, um, you know, there are horses that are millions of dollars and there are horses that are thousands of dollars and same thing for camels. So you are going to find people with different degrees of wealth you you want to stay on this path, you're going to have to ign- learn to ignore that. Immediately followed, وَلَا عَلَيْهِمْ Why? وَلَا عَلَيْهِمْ Don't be sad. Because the Prophet, ﷺ, cared. And knowing the truth and knowing the fate of people that he cared about broke his heart. And in fact, if you don't love a people, you can't guide them. We have been accustomed, thanks to the Wahhabi movement, thanks to the Akhbari movement, thanks to the Ahl al-Hadith movement, thanks to uh, Egyptian Hollywood, the, the Egyptian movies, uh, the, to, to believe that the Mus- Muslims hated the kuffar. That's not true. If I had an opportunity to teach you the seerah, I would show you time and time again that the attitude of Muslims towards the kuffar was not hate. It was actually love. They cared about them and cared about them and it saddened them and it broke their hearts. And this is not the only place where the Quran consoles the Prophet and says, we know that you are, your heart is broken because you know the fate of these people. But this is the way it is and this is the way Allah wants it. And even if you wanted to, most people will not follow you and most people will not believe. And and lower your wing idiomatically. When you say lower your wing, meaning it means treat your followers with the utmost sympathy and kindness. Again, the attitude of Muslims towards one of another should be precisely that. If Allah looks upon us and finds that as Muslims, we we don't we, we we don't lower our wings to each other. Do, do you think Allah is going to be pleased with us? And Allah is going to say, "Yeah, you don't lower your, your wings to each other, but 
um, you have X number of hadith memorized and you give wonderful khutbahs where you you know, cite so many Quranic verses. It, 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 it doesn't work that way. That's exactly what Surah Al-Hijr is telling you. It's a total, holistic, balanced picture. وَقُلْ إِنِّي أَنَا النَّذِيرُ الْمُبِينَ Now, having told you, do not covet. Do not be sad for those who will deny you and refuse you. And be kind, but stick to the principle and the cause. And what is the cause? Declare and proclaim your mission. Say, I am your prophet. Do all of that. This is, again, part of the balance, the total picture. Do all of this, but stick to the mission. Okay, let's pause here to pray in Maghrib, and then we'll continue, inshallah. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, so now we are leading up to the finale of Surah Al-Hajr. And the, the, the testament that it's going to leave us with. After it then reminds the Prophet Remember that you have to proclaim that your mission. Then it, it, it takes us to what will unveil re, the, the whole point of Surah Al-Hajr. كَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَى الْمُقْتَصِمِينَ الَّذِينَ جَعَلُوا الْقُرْآنَ عِضِينَ Now, what, what this means, there is the literal meaning and then the, the more... الْمُقْتَصِمِينَ الَّذِينَ جَعَلُوا الْقُرْآنَ عِضِينَ are people who... want or methodology or the, the approach they choose with the Quran is that they want to take parts of it and ignore other parts of it. Exactly what we said at earlier, the, the problem of ijtizat or the problem of Picking and choosing as a philosophy of life instead of committing to a principled existence. Uh oh, something happened. Okay. Al Muqtasimin al Ladina Jalu Quran Al Muqtasimin al Ladina Jalu Quran are people who pick and choose, who slice and dice from the Qur'an to believe some, to, to follow some, to obey some, and not obey some. Now, what's 
quite interesting here is that, of course, the question is, we were talking about those who refused to believe the Prophet ﷺ. When it then tells us about Al-Muqtasimeen Al-Ladheena Ja'alu Qur'an Adheen, there are reports, just so you know, that this, that the occasion for these ayat where the um, a group of people in Mecca um, so that which, which was it um, I think yeah but 16 people or so who were led by Al-Walid bin Mughira and Utbah uh, um, Utbah and Shayba and others like that um, who were sworn enemies of the Prophet and there are these reports that say that Al-Muqtasimeen were talking about this group of this group of people. However, there is a problem with these reports. And the problem is the group of Al-Walid bin Mughira and Utbah and Shayba um, were kuffar. They, they didn't believe some of the Qur'an and deny some of the Qur'an. They, they didn't slice and dice the Qur'an. They were simply unbelievers. And in fact, not only were they unbelievers, but later on, uh, they fought in the battle of Uhud. Oh, sorry, fought in the battle of Badr and, were, and some of them were eventually killed in the battle of Badr fighting Muslims. So that doesn't fit. And the, I'm not, it's not me who says this, but other Quranic commentators said this long centuries before me. That in fact what, what, what it talks about are groups of people whose commitment to this message was not total and complete but wavering and confused. And that comes, that makes sense when you again think about the impact of the Isra and Mi'raj, when the Prophet ﷺ says that he ascended to heaven and Jerusalem. There were some who said, well, you know, we believe him except for this part. Well, that's not going to work. For beyond the moment of the Prophet ﷺ, what the الَّذِينَ جَعَلُوا قُرْآنَ is a relationship with the Qur'an that so many times this ayah came to my mind as I watch the way Muslims deal with the Qur'an where they will pluck verses that agree with the position they want to assert. It's not that they approach the Qur'an as a guide in life, as the master teacher in life, but they approach the Qur'an as basically a follower. They, they will, something will come up 
and then they will go search the Quran for some ayat that they can cite to support their position. That's al-muqtasimeen al-ladheena ja'alu Quran adeen. Or being a Muslim who wants to follow the Quran, but your face is wishy-washy. It comes and goes. You're at times clear-headed, at times you're confused, as we talked about. That's precisely what Surah Al-Hijr is about. You take the entire journey of Surah Al-Hijr. That's what it's talking about. The, the wavering, confused type that became a phenomena, at, especially at that point, when the persecution of Muslims were intensifying, that is what's testing the faith of so many of the followers of Muhammad. And after the story of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, and there were a lot of reasons for people to justify not... And remember, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that very soon... He's going to give a command to Muslims to leave all their possessions, all their property, and migrate to Medina. Because the kuffar were going to say, well, if you want to migrate, okay, but you can't take your, your possessions with you. What is going to be, what, this is going to entail a huge financial sacrifice. And Surah Al-Hijj was preparing them for what is to come even though they didn't know at the time that it was preparing them for what is to come, the level of sacrifice that would be required of them. فَوَرَبِّكَ لَنَسْأَلُهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ عَمَّا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ فَاصْدَعْ بِبَا تُؤْمَرْ وَعْرِضْ عَنِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ So, affirming Allah underscoring and affirming that at the end there is the, an accountability for they will be all held to account. So, what should your attitude be? Follow what you are told, be unwavering in your commitment, and Turn away from al-mushrikeen. Farid an al-mushrikeen is not just, it, it, the translator says, so proclaim as though has been commanded and turn away from the idolaters or uh, idolaters. Um, turn away, Farid, doesn't just mean you, you turn away it means that you don't, you make a commitment not to follow their way of life. So if you, in, in your own life today, if you wanted to implement Fa'arid Anil Mushrikeen, it doesn't mean don't say good morning to them. It doesn't mean don't smile at them. It doesn't mean don't talk to them. But it means that your attitude, it should be clear in your mind that your philosophy of life is very different than theirs. And that 
there is, it is entirely immaterial whether they believe you or not believe you, whether they accept you or not accept you. Don't expect that. Don't care about that. In the same way that you've turned away from the style of life, the material style of life, and you no longer covet the type of material possessions that they have, you also turn away from the philosophy of life that facilitates this materialism and upon which this materialism is based. Okay. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet that we Allah the, the translation we have uh, uh, truly we shall suffice thee against those who mock that those who mock you there is a discussion in Islamic theology about whether that promise given to the Prophet whether it applies to people other than the Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet, leave it with us. Leave it with God. God is going to answer those who mock you. The answer, the question is, well, what if you follow the path of the Prophet? And because you follow the path of the Prophet, you are mocked and persecuted. The more insightful theologians note that even after this revelation, the suffering of the Prophet didn't end. It intensified. So when Allah told the Prophet, don't worry, we will, we will, we will suffice you as to those who mock you. It wasn't a promise that your suffering, prophet of God, will end. It's in fact intensified. It became harder. The, the opinion of some and the opinion that I am comfortable with and that I follow is that in fact Allah is talking to us and not just talking to the prophet in, when Allah says, mustahzi'in." It doesn't mean that Allah will shut those will, will shut up or will silence those who mock you. And it doesn't mean that those who mock you will become poor and destitute or homeless. It doesn't mean that they will go to prison and you will be it means that if you are truly with Allah, the mockery of those who mock you will not matter anymore. You will not care. It stops making a difference. Put it this way. The medicine, it's as if you are, Allah is giving you a medicine. Allah could give you superficial medicine by physically defeating those who mock you. But that's yielding to the logic of materialism. Or Allah could come and give you the medicine in your soul so that your soul is tranquil and at peace even when those who mock you mock you. Which would you rather have? In the way of God is the way of the soul. 
what happens in the hereafter is going to be justice. So rest assured, if their mockery was unjust and if their persecution is unjust, there are going to be a settlement of accounts. But on this earth, the promise of Allah is tranquility of in the heart and peace in the heart. Okay. For Allah knows that it hurts you. What they say about you hurts you. Now, the finale. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ الْيَقِينَ We pause here. After taking you on this journey, after telling you Alif Lam Ra, this is the 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 code that Allah reveals, and as I said, it's a big topic, and whether it's part of the language of jinn and this whole thing. And then telling you that this is Quran, this Quran holds the truth, and take, taking you through the journey for why some people are confused, and not just confused, but committed to confusion. And that the people who are committed to confusion are often unable to commit to the Quran in total as a way of life. But rather, are they pick and choose in, in the Quran. They, they follow some, they don't follow some. They're sometimes clear-headed, they're sometimes not clear-headed. And then it takes you through why are things so clear black, and precise when it comes to Allah's sovereignty and Allah as the inheritor of all. Because this entire creation would not have any sense or any meaning without that Allah, without that, that inheritor and without that Lord over creation. And without there being accountability and consequences to what people do, because without consequences, then there's no meaning. And taking you through the journey of the struggles and the, the difficulties that those who commit to principle, go through, and the, the inevitable legacy of that. In these last two ayat, these two la- last two verses, so Allah, what is the path then? Allah, what do I do? How do I become that way? How do I become among those who are not confused, those who are clear-headed, those who have a firm commitment and a clear vision of the path. And the answer comes, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ Supplicate. سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْدِكَ That's سَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْدِكَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْدِكَ Supplicate. ذِكْر. وَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ and sujood. وَعَبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ الْيَقِينَ And worship your Lord until certitude comes to you. Is it that simple? Are you saying that the more I worship, 
the more all of this is going to fit right into place. The more I do dhikr, the more I do sujood, the more I worship, the more I talk to God, the more this entire thing, this certitude and this peace and this lack of confusion will come and the answer is absolutely yes. This is precisely why if you look at the seerah, after the Isra and after Surah Al-Hijr, I told you that there was a group of young people that would meet to study the Quran and they came to the conclusion that staring at the sky is haram and that Surah Al-Hijr you know, said, stop this nonsense. We saw a, a new transformation for the movement of the Quran, meaning what? The birth of, and Ahl al-Safwa, by the way, as well, a group of people that formed who became thoroughly committed to long hours. I mean, they, they were unable to match what the Prophet والسلام, and his and his Ahl al-Bayt were able to do in, in, in the long hours of prayer. But Muslims at that point realized that there is no path forward without zikr and sujood and ibadah. This is not just about an intellectual project. This is not about intellectualism and pontification and speculations. This is why I told you earlier on, I think in the, our very first meeting, that, or maybe it was one of the Q&As or something, that the problem with so many so-called Muslim reformers in our day and age is the lack of piety. If you have the most wonderful ideas about new hermeneutics and new epistemology and all of that, you know, fancy stuff, and you have all the academic qualifications, but fundamentally, you do not you do not exude piety. You do not educate people on piety. I have no use for you. Because bright ideas and brilliant ideas don't have to come from a Muslim. What I want from a Muslim is both brilliant ideas, but brilliant ideas anchored in a, spirit, in a set of spiritual commitments that look to Allah as the sovereign and the guide. This is, by the way, the Egyptian TVs, uh, TV stations these days are full of, the, you know, CC, that tyrant, insane fascist tyrant, uh, has proclaimed that he wants uh, a new enlightened Islam. And of course, because the tyrant wants a new enlightened Islam, Egyptian TV now is full of so-called Tanwiriyun, uh, the the enlightened movement of all these Muslims who show up on TV and they start they start talking about a new understanding of Sirah, a new understanding of the Quran, and new this. But the remarkable thing when you watch all of them is that none of them talk about piety or any type of sincere and warm and loving relationship with Allah. 
and that's why all of their ideas, as far as I'm concerned, can go in the trash bin. In the in, in the trash bin. But let's go back to Surah Al-Hajj. Surah Al-Hajj was very important for me in teaching me the critical, absolute necessity of balance and being systematic and consistent in my convictions. If I didn't want to go back and forth like a seesaw, then the only path is to draw closer to Allah. The further away from Allah, the more confused I am. And the closer to Allah, the more stable I am. But being closer to Allah required a set of systematic and consistent and holistic commitments that are summed up in not picking and choosing with the Qur'an, but understanding the Qur'an as a total whole, the entire moral message of the Qur'an. Um, in closing, let me just tell you, among the, the things, beautiful things uh, that are often recounted with Surah Al-Hajj, um, Imam al-Hasan uh, uh, used to say um, in reciting Surah Al-Hajj Ma atala abdun al-amal illa asa al-amal that the th- among the things that he learned from Surah Al-Hajj that no one who lives wishfully who just is engaged in wishful thinking, uh, the inevitable result is that their deeds will not be good. If you take Allah for granted, it's just a matter of time before your deeds reflect that fact. Anas reported that the Prophet said, among the things that has that have, have always resonated with me, this hadith: "Arba' min al-shaqa' jumud al-'ain wa qasawat al-qalb wa tul al-amal wa al-hirs ala dunya There are four things that will lead you into will lead you astray, and will be the cause of misery. A hard Eye. Hard eye means eye that doesn't tear. You, you've taught yourself, you haven't taught yourself to, to cry because of your relationship with Allah. Uh, some people, you know, they might cry because they lost a loved one or they lost a job, but not when it comes to Allah. And that's a moral failure. Jumud al-ayn wa qasawat al-qalb and a hard heart a heart that wants to that that wants to feel proud that it doesn't feel and it doesn't hurt no your your heart has to be soft the softer your heart the closer you are the the, the more able you are to to get close to Allah if your heart 
you can teach your heart softness. And there are moral exercises and spiritual exercises for that. وَطُولِ الْأَمَلِ If you engage in wishful thinking and hopefulness that basically Allah is going to be, Allah will forgive me, it's okay. Um, that's a sure thing that will lead you astray. وَالْحِرْصَ عَلَى الدُّنْيَا And materialism. That's a hadith from the Prophet. Four things. An eye that doesn't tear, a heart that doesn't feel, wishful thinking, and al-hirsa al-dunya, coveting material possessions of this earth. Okay. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. That's Surah Al-Hajj. My... My two minutes that you can cut and pay, 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 paste. The Quran is full of wisdom. This is now six surah. I've taken you on a journey with each surah. With what I hope you will agree with me are perils of wisdom. I mean, once you are exposed to them you can't believe that you can live life or that you've lived life without knowledge of them well we've only covered six sur and in the same way that Allah spoke to the Prophet and said you know I know that it saddens you my source of sadness is the thought of the possibility of leaving this world without having transmitted all that I've learned about the Qur'an. Because you have not seen anything yet. This is just a drop in the ocean. And if I had my way, I wouldn't allow anyone to teach the Qur'an unless they've truly mastered it. Because any partial teacher of the Qur'an corrupts the Qur'an. Unintentionally, but they still corrupt the Quran. And we don't have qualified teachers of the Quran. I mean, if you count the qualified teachers of the Quran around the world, a handful. And then we wonder why we are in the state we're in. I say all of this because I wish that I didn't have to the next thing on my agenda to prepare for my political asylum class and even Islamic law class, as as beautiful, as wonderful as the topic is, but it's not in my heart. We It's not Islamic law that we need these days. Um, and to watch the, 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 the clock tick and the days pass, um, Yeah, me, me. Allah, ma yasha. Alhamdulillah, ala kulli hal. Okay. Okay, so Sharif gets the first question. I'm going to ask the first question. Sharif is asking the first question, everyone. <laughs> he decided. Um, okay, so the, the last, this is about the, the last verse, when you said that 
is, is it really that simple of the subhanaka with the prostration and the yeah. and the ibadah and I know that you, in the beginning of the halakha you said that this is separate from the old tafsir but it was relevant for me because the thing that I thought of was when you talk about the word ibadah and the fatah halakhas and you talk about it how it's commonly just assumed to mean physical worship and in the same section you talk about how it can actually become something that devolves people and corrupts people if they're doing un- if they're you know doing unethical behaviors and hurting people and but then just praying and praying it can actually act as like a weight yeah that sinks them so i mean when we're talking about ibadah here are we just talking about the physical worship or are we also talking about ibadah in the sense of doing good works which is some which is was a connotation that you brought to in the fatiha halakas yeah that's a good question the notice the the progression of the instructions here fasabbih bihamdi rabbika dhikr وَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ Actual physical sujood. And then the broader meaning, وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ الْيَقِينَ Now, if ibadah here was simply dhikr and sujood, that would be redundant. So it takes you towards the specific first and the specific is dhikr and sujood, the actual physical worship, to the broader ibadah. And that is that includes everything, including all the permutations of jihad, struggle in the way of, of God. Jihad al-nafs is ibadah, struggling against the self is ibadah. Jihad al-amr bil-ma'roof al-munkar, calling for what is good and resisting what is not good, what is evil, is ibadah. Doing good deeds is ibadah, like feeding the poor, taking care of the orphan, the, 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 all the, the broader, the, the main thing is that whether you do it with the intentionality of service to Allah or you do it with the intentionality of something else. And if your intention in your jihad is to serve Allah, then it is ibadah. Of course, the the Quran was quite specific in that it preceded that with dhikr and sujood before it got to the broader meaning of ibadah. Those who live, I mean, the, the the way that it would always be put with, you know, you could read the same book. Let's say you decide to read the book, and you could read exactly the same book, but you could either read the book with an intention that I want to learn so that my ibadah, my path to Allah is... So I can pursue my path to Allah. Or you could read the book because the book is fun to read or because you want to learn something or because you want to agree. The act is the same. It's the intentionality that that determines 
the nature of the act. And same thing even with uh, performing a profession. If you are in your profession, you're, you're, you are fully cognizant of service to Allah in your profession, then that could count as ibadah. But if you are doing it for other reasons like promotion, financial gain, then that's not ibadah. You shared with us how this surah led you to Al-Fatiha being the key. Would you please share the process by which you came to realize that dhikr was also part of the methodology as you now engage in that dhikr? Oh, this was not on. Sorry. Huh? <laughs> sorry, the microphone was not on. Oh. Okay, sorry about that. Um, you shared with us how this surah led you to Al-Fatiha being the key. Would you please share the process by which you came to realize that dhikr was also part of the methodology as you now engage in that dhikr? Realizing that the fatiha was the key needed a realization, I mean, needed study, uh, because it's not intuitively something that you're trained with and not something that you you're taught there there is i mean i was aware of some of the sufi tariqas and that had um that had emphasized the core essence of al-fatiha but the idea of al-fatiha as a key to the quran uh, was a process of discovery zikr is a, is a different thing because if you undergo any proper Islamic training, I mean, unfortunately, nowadays you you encounter um, a lot of Islamic programs that will talk about ulum al-Quran or ulum al-Hadith or usul al-Fiqh or usul al-Din, and remarkably, while they might pray jama'ah, Remarkably, they're not. They don't educate their students on dhikr. Dhikr, as a mainstay of Islamic knowledge, has a very long and old history. Um, that was something that was emphasized in Islamic education. Um, and the only people that I'm aware of that did not emphasize it in Islamic education perhaps were Ahl al-Hadith uh, because they their method of knowledge was not analytical and not spiritual. It was it relied on raw memory. They, they memorized the Hadith, the Riwayat, the Isnad, the Rijal. And so the better your memory, the more you excelled in their ranks and they, 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 their their methodology had very little to do with either analytical processes or kashf or any type of um, discovery. Um, 
they emphasize so much that something is reported by someone to someone to someone to someone, and that required a strong memory first and foremost, and nearly quite often exclusively so. Um, now, of course, why dhikr has that place throughout Islamic history? Well, because of the, the, the emphasis, the Quranic emphasis on dhikrullah and that, and in fact, the Quranic emphasis that all form of prayer is dhikr, um, that dhikr is in fact may take so many different forms but in essence it is the way that you develop a connection with the divine Um, now as to I think what you might have in mind is the the dhikr that is unique to every surah. So surah al-Hijr, for instance, فَسَبِّحْ بَحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيكَ الْيَقِينَ is the dhikr for the, uh, that acted as a key for the surah. And that I can't claim that I got from someone else. Um, and how it developed... The only thing that I can tell you is that first you memorize and then after, in, in my case, after the, the tumor that affected my memory enormously. And so then the, um, as you read again and again and again, it I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that it became sometimes the surah would I would go to sleep and I would the surah would recite in my mind as I'm sleeping and I would wake up and there are a few words from the surah that keep repeating and I, and, and Surah Al-Hijr is an example. Keep repeating again and again. And so, and I've learned through just that when I have a situation like this, I immediately pray. And I immediately spend a lot of time in prayer. And as I would keep repeating that dhikr and keep studying the surah, um, the meaning would become clearer and clearer. Now, if I would have done all of that without a thorough doing my due diligence in researching the tafsir and, and testing whatever my thoughts about the surah where, in light of the tafsir, then if I didn't do that, then I would be negligent and I would be responsible and liable. 
you are not allowed to claim knowledge until you've investigated the oceans of knowledge. You've done your homework. After you do your homework, you can then propose what might be something new or something novel or something original. But you cannot claim originality unless you've done your due diligence. And so the, the, my family will tell you that even after, you know, they, they've seen me years and years and years uh, going through the same books, spending time with the same books, and even the day before the halaqah, I still go back and I still reread the sources. And I will still um, uh, obsessively search if there is any tafsir out there that might have been, that I have not, might not have read. And I will not rest until I satisfy myself that I've looked at everything that is out there. The, the problem with so many students who want to claim originality is impatience and lack of diligence that without doing the, the necessary homework, they might rely on their perception of their own piety. And your, your piety must be your, your thoughts about your piety, or at least your, your, your perception of your own piety, must be reined in and disciplined by actual scholarly knowledge. It is the wedding of the two that can put you in a position to say, I might have something to contribute. Before that, uh, it's sheer um, arrogance to claim that you have anything to contribute. Is that a long and protracted and hard process? Yes. But that's precisely why we as Muslims must understand that there's a scholarship is the most valuable, our most important investment is in human beings. And the most, in, we invest in human beings in feeding them and clothing them. But also, in raising, in, in taking care and nourishing the intellect and the spirit. And the most valuable asset that a society or a community that ha has is its investment in intellects and spirits. And that takes resources. And it is messed up to ask, to go to an ummah and say people on their own initiative should make that very serious investment. And because we don't invest in what we should invest in, uh, you know, a lot of what we invest, the money we spend on things like Zaytuna or Bayan or whatever, is frankly an investment in a show, in, in a theater. It's a theater of Islamicity. But it is not the type of serious, methodological, disciplined, long hours of study and scholarship and that is required for the production of knowledge.
our fate as an ummah is not going to change until we get our heads on straight and we stop spending money on consumption items and we spend our money in what matters and knowledge knowledge and especially the study of our quran and the sp- the study of the legacy of the prophet and the sira and then everything else also i i just wanted to say that i've noticed like all through the years um the professor even goes so far as like I know that a lot of what he presents is actually original, but he won't claim it as original. And so that's hap- I mean, just from you know the decades of research, it's part of the part of the humility, part of the training, part of the belief that you build upon the tradition of everyone. But I know that for I mean, for me coming to this faith, I didn't know very much, and so I just assumed that there was a body of knowledge or understanding that all scholars just knew because by definition of being a scholar, but that is really not true, and that scholarship is as original as you know, uh, like a, a musician writing a composition. It's, it's it's how much they know and what they put into it, but we wouldn't know that necessarily by what when we read the professor's books or hear what he's saying. There's a lot in there that is original to him, but because we don't know the whole picture, we don't know what that is. But I mean, and and I just think that that I've noted. I mean, now that you know. I've watched him for decades. Now I understand that, but I couldn't tell you still what those things are. But just to appreciate that that's something very beautiful. Um, okay, next question. Um, earlier you mentioned about drifting away from Allah and then the problem of inadvertently drifting into the companionship of the demonic and the difficulty of loosening the grasp on you once you are in that dark place. It is possible. Is it possible that repeated recitation or listening to Rukya can help a believer who is trying to find their way back? Uh, yes. Um, Rukya Shari'a is effective. Um, the ending in the grasp of the demonic I don't know of. I know that Hollywood often portrays the 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 the, the perception that that you know some people could wake up and find themselves possessed and things like that, um, and and that's largely inaccurate. Uh, it, it it takes it takes a lot of sin to end up in the grasp of the demonic, where where um, where Shaitan basically has. Or shayateen, because it's not just one shaitan, but shayateen has a complete access to you, and having clean thoughts or luminous thoughts becomes very difficult. And everything you think of, or the vast majority of what you think of, becomes dark and ugly and sinful. Um, and these are the people that might in rare cases become possessed but that that's a different matter and you know that's an extreme case but even without you know you're in the realm of the demonic when when you've drifted so far that Allah has become so such an alien thing to you um 
And in fact, what eventually happens is with the feelings you develop are feelings of resentment and anger towards God. And in some cases, even hate. Um, And not necessarily is that you hate God because you don't want to confess to yourself that if you say you hate God, then you say also that you believe in God. But you find yourself hateful towards those who believe in God. So when when your attitude, when you find someone that reminds you of the divine, um, is your first impulse is one of aversion and intense dislike and and that's that, that's serious trouble that that's very serious trouble um the thing that i'll say is that for those who are those who it's very difficult for those who are close to you to see what you've become but for those who encounter you for the first time you strike them if they have any purity at all you strike them as a very ugly human being and a human being that induces a lot of a lot of anxiety in them and a lot of discomfort and at the same time you attract ugly people so when p- people who are lost uh they find you very attractive and they find you know sitting with you drinking with you taking drugs with you uh partying with you very attractive so now it takes hard work to uh, to disentangle yourself from that. And Ruqya by itself is not going to do it. But Ruqya accompanied by a strong intent to deliver yourself and a strong will for God to disentangle you from this mess and Ibadah and Dhikr uh, will be effective. Um if you're lucky, you can do it with a sheikh. If there is no sheikh, you can do it by yourself. It's just harder. That's all. Okay, so there's a question about verse 72, about an unstable life that is full of mood swings. And this question is um, about spirituality in connection to psychology. And to someone who has a proper life bearing as what the message of Surah Al-Hijr discloses, um, would this also help people who might have mood swings because of biological um, or chemical imbalances um, or biological concern? Yeah, subhanAllah. I mean, I used to have these conversations uh, a lot with my um, my late mother, Allah because she was a psychologist and... Um, and um you know when i when i uh when i took psychology in in the west um you know and you read about things like bipolar conditions and so on um and you you get the impression that no it's a it's a chemical thing and and um that drugs can stabilize this and stabilize that. And uh, from the conversations that I've had with my, with my mother, um, 
there might be extreme cases like that where it's an actual chemical imbalance, but it seems like these are rare cases. And that too many psychiatrists in the West err in the side of chemical treatment. Um, and so, for instance, some of the material that I've read is about the 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 antidepression uh, the, the um, antidepression drugs and how they become an epidemic uh, around the world. I mean, there are countries that and and tranquilizers and things like that. The, the reason I brought my, I, I mentioned my mother in this context is that she would tell me about her own experiences 30 years as, as a psychologist. Um, the, her battles sometimes with the psychiatrist in the hospitals who were too quick to prescribe chemicals to treat conditions and that she would often plead with them to put that off until she had an opportunity to advise her patients spiritually. And she would tell me story after story after story about um, how spiritual practice and alternatives to pharmaceuticals worked with so many of the patients that psychiatrists were ready to just write prescriptions for. And I know that this is anecdotal because it's the experience of one person, but I have enormous trust in her. And and um, I can tell you, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you that in my own I think that I believe that biologically I was always prone to depression personally that just I was always a pensive child um while other child uh, children are playing and screaming and whatever I I wouldn't play I would just watch people pensively and stare at them and um in in fact when when I was in um fourth grade I had a teacher that was convinced that because I don't play that there's something wrong with me and that I should be sent to a psychiatrist um, because I wouldn't, you know, I used to look at, I wouldn't do swings, I wouldn't slide on stuff, I, I would just stand there and watch children. And my treatment has always been Iman. The, the way that I addressed everything is through Allah and with Allah. And it heals. It, it, um, it Yeah, I mean the, the, the healing that you receive is unlike any other. So I, I'm careful here, if you notice I'm being very careful because I don't want to discount but th that there are cases that are uh, serious biological, physiological problems. Um, we see that 
in in even the period that I've I, I had friends who were who were um, a professional, if you will, um, exorcists, and the the one thing they always did is that they always had someone that they suspected was possessed seen by a psychiatrist and to tell them before they do anything so the so they can make an assessment whether this person has a, a spiritual problem or a, a, a physiological problem and so i know from what they've shared with me that there were people who no seriously had serious physiological problems and and were seriously ill uh but i i don't, i think these are far more rare than modern the culture of modern pharmaceuticals leads us to believe allah and allahu alam allah knows best Can I tell the rest of that embarrassing story about when you were in fourth grade? <laughs> okay, he's not going to remember this. He told me this story. Are you going to embarrass me again? Yeah, I probably will. But I think it's really, really uh, funny. This is one of my favorite stories that he told me about his childhood. So to continue with that, being in fourth grade. Oh, I know what you're going to say now. <laughs> okay, I know. Is that he would walk around and look at the children and everything. And so this teacher that this really irked her, that he didn't play. And so she was really after him. And subhanAllah, it's like the professor when he was a little kid had either like really love-hate relationships with his teachers, which is really interesting. So I think this teacher really, really it irked her that, um, that he didn't play. So it became a, an issue where he was in trouble. So the way he dealt with it... She was going to flunk me fourth grade. Okay, and so his response was every single recess, he would just go to the slide and go up the slide, down the slide, back up the slide, down the slide, the whole recess, <laughs> incessantly, until she finally gave up, I guess. She gave up, yeah, because yeah. when she told my mother that I don't play, and my mother said, well, he spends the entire recess, goes up and down, she said, but he doesn't smile and he doesn't laugh as he's doing it. And she was right, because I was just doing it, because I knew she was standing there watching me. So I would just go up and down, up and down, up and down. And my mind would be completely somewhere else. Um, I got no enjoyment from it. I thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. Why do people go up and slide down, up and slide down? But hey, you know, it was what was necessary for me to pass the fourth grade, so I did it. <laughs> I, I love that story, so I thought I would share it. That's not that embarrassing. Okay, um, so next question. Um, can I give myself or lo a loved one comfort in this life by reassuring um, us that Allah is kind, good, forgiving, and beautiful without crossing the line and taking Allah for granted with false hope? Yes, I mean, it, it, it is with the underscoring that when the angels remind the Prophet Ibrahim salam that it is an act of injustice to despair in Allah's hope. Uh, you are duty-bound to tell the full truth for someone who wants the truth. Now, but if you are counseling someone 
And let's say someone who has lived a horrible life or has committed a lot of sin and what they need to to hear is that they're not lost and that Allah could possibly forgive them I definitely emphasize Allah's mercy of course you know, I, I told them at some point or another that you know this is serious because the other side of it the other side of Allah's mercy is that what the what um, the requisites of justice, and that's Allah's punishment. But that if you are despairing in Allah's mercy, then you don't understand what Allah wants from us. And that, as Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says to us in the Quran, what your punishment or your torment. Um, Avails Allah nothing. That what would what can what does Allah what comes of your torment for Allah? Nothing. It it is something that is required by the dictates of justice. But Allah's mercy always trumps Allah's punishment, and that's something again that the Quran tells us that if justice cannot be can be achieved without punishment then that's the preferred course for Allah. And so it is fair to say, and it is entirely accurate to say, that Allah is literally waiting for us to ask for forgiveness so that Allah can forgive. Um, and as we all, we, we there are, you know, among the most authentic traditions reported from the prophet is that if you take one step towards Allah takes Allah takes ten towards you. Um, Allah's punishment is never mentioned without Allah's mercy or forgiveness mentioned at the same time. Because the 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 two sides of the equation are are necessitated by justice, but the preference that Allah has is the preference of mercy and forgiveness. If at all possible to do that without the result being injustice. Okay, so... Is this thing on? Um, I've always wondered why Satan never sought forgiveness from his mistake. Is his problem with God more fundamental? Is there a philosophical legitimacy to one not owning their actions? For example, hard determinism. That Satan is unwilling to give up that makes him resent God for eternity. Is the problem that Satan never, quote unquote, accepts the impossibility of understanding free will and the reality of God's good nature? Is accepting our lack of total knowledge of the divine good plan the the primary requirement from Allah there is a lot written about that um a lot the, in in Islamic theodicy I mean there's there's a considerable amount um it, it would be fair to say that if you look at the discourses of Islamic theologians, it would include all of the above. I'm I'm going to exclude the material that um, 
came from the biblical tradition because Tabari and others who've transmitted a lot of things taken from the biblical tradition without um, without scrutinizing this material for consistency with Islamic theology generally. But where you find the most written about this in are in the discourses on Kalam and the treatises on Kalam. And um and so for instance, uh, even in Karathi's book, in his response to Jewish and Christian theology, he writes a great deal about that. And what we do know What I think is, is, is Satan seems to has his inability to see the goodness in Allah's honoring what Satan saw as an inferior creature is fundamental, but also Satan blamed God for his sin. Um, so when when Satan tells Allah, "Bima aghwaitani," because it's your fault that I am in this position, also seemed to have become quite critical. Um, now, of course, human logic told us, "Well, if Satan knew that ultimately." there is punishment. Why would Satan continue defying? And Muslim theologians have these long debates as to whether Satan, in fact, himself, or Satan's self, whatever Satan is, um, has relies on an element of wishfulness and hopefulness that Satan is relying on, at the very end, sort of begging and pleading with God for forgiveness and the belief that God will forgive him. It would be consistent with a very arrogant personality or a very arrogant character. Um, Or is Satan, as some Muslims argued, believe that, in fact, he can augment his own power so that at ultimately defy God and escape punishment. Or, as some theologians argue, that, in fact, no, Satan has has despaired in God's mercy and said, and that that's his major sin, is despairing in God's mercy. And saying, well, you know, um, I blamed God, I defied God, I was uh, expelled, and now that I have my many followers, there's no point in, in, so whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and basically Satan is submitting to punishment, as the Quran sometimes seems to indicate. Uh, or submitting to the inevitability of punishment, you'll find 
fascinating debates about this in the Islamic tradition and what evidence they rely on. You know, is Satan a a um, sort of a, a paradigm for the failures of so in fact there is no one Satan but many Satans and that these many Satans all share in the same metaphorical sin, sin um, and that these Satans could be human or jinn so that they are they, they all fall because of arrogance and because of defiance and because of wishful thinking that's another school of thought my own, I tend to believe that there is a grand Satan, the 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 the, the father of of them all. That Satan's or demons, shayateen, is shayateen and insuajin, as the Quran says. That there are shayateen that are jinn, and there are shayateen that are human, and that a human being could become a shaitan, in the same way that a jinn could become a shaitan. Contrary to a lot of Muslim theologians, I don't believe that any jinn is born to be a shaitan. I think that they either become a shaitan or they they choose to either become a shaitan or they choose not to become a shaitan through their own... But that's a long and very extended discourse. And it, I mean, it's very fascinating. It's very hard to resist not delving into it. Uh, but what what fascinates me the the most is that, and oh, and there is another thing that some have argued, relying on some biblical narratives, that part of what Satan rebelled against is sharing creation. Is that jinn? were the main creation of Allah before the creation of human beings. And they enjoyed access not to just earth, but to various spaces that Allah has created. And that jinn were nations and tribes. And the head of the rebellion, Shaitan, saw the creation of human beings as an encroachment upon part of the territory that used to be uh, um, that used to belong to jinn and that what he rebelled against was sharing territory sharing earth with human beings um Yeah, I think I, so. So we don't end up spending very long time on this. I think that's all I'm going to say about this for now. Um, but it, there are some sources that I can suggest if, if you want, whoever asked this question, if if you want to to read more about these types of debates, there are actually a couple of published. Uh, there is a book by Ormsby. Uh, I think it's titled something like Islamic Theodicy that talks about these debates um yeah that that serves as a good introduction <clears throat> okay um uh, salam alaikum dari man 
God reward you and protect you for us all. I find your reading of, of Satan as the first racist very interesting. I noticed a few connections between the three stories in the chapter. Um, the people of, Lo of, of Lot used the power of sexual violence to establish dominance and supremacy. The people who lived in the Valley of Hijr used wealth um, to dominate and, and seem supreme over others, despite secretly knowing that they lived a meaningless life chasing socioeconomic power and status instead of seeking God and truth. And Satan's supremacist attitude towards humans seems like a manifestation of desire to not submit to Allah's will. Is this the ultimate instance of shirk that gave rise to these other man-made gods of power and wealth that the people of Hijr and Qom Lot chose to worship? Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful insight. Um, that's a very beautiful insight. And that that's precisely the type of inspiration that that I would like to see when we take the Quran seriously, then the Quran can be a living revelation amongst us. It can be the continuing of a living prophecy. But first we have to understand the Quran as speaking to us as a active moral agent. So that type of insight is exactly a type of insight that I look for. Um, and, and, and that would render the Quran compelling and relevant for every moment that we exist in, because it is. It is not that we are projecting something about the text. This is a remarkably wealthy and layered text. And and it's, for good reason, it's authored by God. Um, and that's that's a beautiful insight. I mean, I, I can't claim that I, that I had put it together myself, it, but... To your credit, um, that's precisely if if we were doing things the right way, in the same way that I am internally grateful to my teachers, we would build insight upon insight. What Muslims rather do is they are so fond of, yeah, uh, you, you know what is uh, what is that expression when you grab things and run. Um, they deal with knowledge as if they're purse snatchers. You know, snatching purses. You find a Muslim, they, they, they pick, up, pick up a little bit of knowledge from somewhere and they snatch it and they run and then they love to present it as their own and take credit for it. And they think that, that they, they've become a scholar in doing that. And, and we all go around playing these ego games. That's not the way knowledge is is nurtured and developed. Knowledge is nurtured and developed in an air of respect and humility and incrementally. One insight builds upon another and one insight gives credit to another as it develops it into greater, into more probing insights. And a, a teacher is is proud of their student as much as a student is proud of their teacher. And that air of gratitude is what allows knowledge to flower. We had these types of institutions, and, but they were all demolished in, in, as we entered the modernity. 
and then we entered into a very um, bastardized culture, uh, the, the culture, post-colonial culture. And in this bastardized culture, we all started dealing with Islamic knowledge like purse snatchers. So you know, you've got the engineer who snatches a little bit of knowledge from somewhere, from some book they read, and then they position themselves as a teacher, and then the medical doctor who pretends to be an authority on God knows what. You know, just go to Islamic centers everywhere and, and see the way they present knowledge. Uh, and even it got even worse that if if you have an insight like this about a surah, you might find yourself excluded and boycotted because people are scared by your insights instead of being grateful for your insights. Um, Which has happened so many times because the professor has gotten kicked out in more like from more conferences than probably anyone else. Islamic conferences. <laughs> yeah. Islam. I Alhamdulillah, I haven't been kicked out of academic conferences. <laughs> I've been kicked out of Islamic conferences. Islamic conferences. conferences. Yeah. So I challenge anyone to have a higher number of kickouts. Um, okay, so guys, we are now approaching the six and a half hour mark. Does it feel like it's been that long? I always like to ask. It just flew by. Divine time. Yeah. So I, I, I hate doing this, but just to help preserve some of the Sheikh's energy, I'm just going to ask one more question and then that way, and then we can call it a night. But hopefully, inshallah, if we can get those last three donors, then we can meet again soon, inshallah. So, okay, our last question. Um, regarding the purposefulness of life as related to God being the ultimate inheritor. Uh, many secularists and humanists claim to experience fulfilled lives without relation to a higher power to give life purpose um, and beyond their own self-ascribed meaning. Is their conception of a good life actually possible or is it necessarily inconsistent? Yeah, you know, this is a, a, the, the, the million-dollar philosophical question, right? Um, I've read the new atheists, this uh, you know the, the the whole class of new atheists, and the and the the claim of spiritual fulfillment has been ongoing uh, since modernity, and especially in postmodernity and the postmodern philosophers. I can't claim to know what is in their hearts. What I can say is that when you look at what I what I can cite is anecdotal evidence. Um, you know, it strikes me that so many of the biographies of philosophers who've claimed to be very satisfied and very fulfilled lived miserable family lives um, and we we often learn after their death of how much they were tormented souls we we learn about their anxieties their depressions and sometimes their suicides um 
it, it was not common for philosophers to commit suicide, by the way, until modernity. Um, and that, that's, a, that's, that's something very Western. A philosopher committing suicide is a very Western phenomenon. In Eastern philosophy, it was unheard of. Um, and in fact, it was an immediate disqualifier from the status of a philosopher. If you belong to the Eastern philosophy school and you killed yourself, uh, no one took you seriously. But And part of what your legacy was as a philosopher is to teach people about happiness, not about utility, but about happiness. And to teach people about happiness necessarily involved teaching people about how to make those around you happy, which included your family, your tribe, your community, your neighbors, it is rather notable that among Western philosophers, the only happiness they talk about is their own personal happiness. In fact, they never tell us anything about their obligation to make their family happy or their community happy. And in fact, someone like Ayn Rand told us you have no obligations to make anyone happy. And, and we can go down the line of different philosophers. To put it mildly, if my life experiences are any measure whatsoever, um, I've known, yeah, a lot of people who were happy in the sense that they were satisfied by their material and professional success. They were satisfied as long as they were getting tenure, they were being recognized in conferences, they were giving keynote speeches, they were getting all the, the, the... But when I've gotten to know them as persons, and I've gotten to know quite a, quite a few of, the, of my contemporary big names, um, I, I was rather very surprised at how... Um, either personally miserable or how miserable their families were. Their kids, their spouses, their if they had any relationships with their with their more extended family. I mean, and to me that to me that was anecdotal proof. Again and again, experiences in life just. I think philosophically, in terms of philosophical coherence, now li live empirical evidence aside, and if you take abstract theory, I would argue it is impossible to make a case, and I've read all the philosophical arguments. None of the philosophical arguments stand to scrutiny when it wants to reach the conclusion of happiness at the end without justice at the end because it it always comes to insurmountable stumbling blocks it can't account for consciousness it can't explain or account for consciousness so that's one 
Two, it can account for conscience only in an opportunistic sense. But it cannot account for conscience if you take social form of agreement. So if I am alone in an island or if if I can get ahead uh, uh, while breaking the social balance, improve my position, it, ultimately there is a philosophical, serious theoretical failure when it comes to accounting for conscience. And then ultimately it can't account for the need for happiness and especially the happiness of others. It can account for utility, that it can account for, but we get into a philosophical discussion as to the difference between utility and happiness. And that's different. And I've never read, I've read several, there are several books that are titled Philosophy of Happiness. Um, but they, I mean, we can get it, if we get into do they ultimately convince me? No, I don't. I think on philosophical grounds, they just ultimately don't cohere. They 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 don't stand out. They they don't stand up rather to to um, philosophical scrutiny. Um, the new atheists are a joke. They're not. That's not even philosophy. I mean, the new atheists, that's just a fad. Um, these, you know, scientists that try to pretend to be philosophers and write, you know, these cheeky books about, you know, they, they're, they're just, they only impress the, the ignorant and, and not very smart. Um, but I'm talking about serious philosophical works when, when, I, when I talk about real engagements with this issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I include. There was a point when, um, um, I, I mean, I've, I've even attended some very fascinating seminars by these postmodernist philosophers, including Derrida and, and and so on, and um, and and part of what they like. What part of what they're very good at is shrouding themselves in the in the obscurity of language and in the academic practice of drawing distinctions, linguistic distinctions that sound good, but leave much desired in terms of meaning. And so when when you know when you pin them down as and you say, you know, stop giving me big, big words and you pretend to be stupid and say, you know, I'm just a simple guy. Just explain to me what you're really saying in very simple terms. Uh, things tend to fall, uh, fall apart very quickly when, when you use that stratagem. Um, you, you, you play the dance. I've developed a reputation in, uh, for being good at playing the dance. In academic circles, at least, they, and people will tell you it's a trick. Don't fall for it. Uh, you know, once he starts saying, "Well, I'm stupid," just explain it to me. He's leading up to something. 
So, yeah. It'll stop. Yeah, so we, we're at six and a half hours. You know, that's part of the, the challenge is that, <laughs> uh, maybe in, in the challenge of not getting donors is that, you know, how, how are people going to commit these types of hours to actually knowing what we have to offer? So maybe it's up to a student to say, okay, you know, you're verbose. It takes you too long to make a point. I'm going to just take it and I'm going to wrap it up in 15 minutes. I'm going to package it up in 15 minutes. Here's the, the, the what you're really trying to say. And that's the mukhtasar. That's why, you know, in the Islamic tradition, they would have the matn and then they would have the mukhtasar and then they have the sharh and then they have the mukhtasar on the sharh and then they have a sharh on the mukhtasar and then they have another mukhtasar on the that sharh to the mukhtasar and then and so on and so forth. So, you know, we need to just rekindle that tradition and maybe the mukhtasar can can get us where we need to be. What's a mukhtasar? Mukhtasar is an abridgment. It's just like, okay, you know, you say too much, I'm going to sum it all up. And then someone comes who needs to then explain the summation and then someone to sum up the explanation and then another one to sum up the... And it just goes on like that endlessly. Okay, well, alhamdulillah. Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this long session. Um, hopefully, inshallah, we will see you guys on Friday. And um, inshallah, not too much time will pass before we have an opportunity to connect again.